come uh, for a great time uh, for us to be together and celebrate what God is doing in the midst of our kids, as well as the opportunity to fellowship with one another in addition to our usual Sunday mornings. If you'll take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to John 21, we find ourselves now in the final paragraphs of the Gospel of John. Although, I will remind you, this is not yet the final message, though we are at the very end. We've set aside chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, which serve somewhat as the the theme of the Gospel of John for the final message, which will be uh, presented next Sunday and by... Pastor Jared. But today we will consider these final words in John 21, verses 15 through 25. Before we read that text, you may, you may know this about me. If we've had discussions, you may not, but um, I happen to be a big fan of old musicals. Anybody, any other fans here of musicals? We're talking, you know, Fred Astaire, folks like that. Well, so because of that, when I began to prepare for this message, as you'll see, understand in a few moments, uh, or from the title itself, the, the immediate thing that jumped into my head was an old musical. And some of you may already know, now that I've put those two tags together, Fiddler on the Roof. So if you're familiar with that musical, you, you probably have already made the connection with what I'm talking about between the title of this message and that musical. Because in one of the scenes of that musical, Tevya, the main character, asks his wife, Golda, uh, this question. Do you love me? And the rest of the scene is played out through a musical number of the classical rendition of the song, Do You Love Me? So I want to take just a moment, a little different than our normal, if you'll humor me for just a moment and watch this clip with me.
Now you may wonder briefly beyond the title of that song and the title of this message, What in the World Does Tevye and Golda Have to Do with John 21 and the final verses of this gospel? And you might rightly say in actuality, well, not much, except that this scene reveals something about real love that is important to what we read in John 21, verses 15 through 25. You see, for Tevya and Golda, love wasn't just some sappy emotion that had its expression in, in mere words. In fact, it seems from the scene that, that words, the words had not often been spoken, if at all, up to that point. But as they sing and consider their life together, they conclude at the end of that song that from their commitment to each other that they did in fact truly love each other in our passage today we find that Jesus asked Peter this same pointed simple question do you love me probably not musical rendition but nevertheless the same question but Jesus however was not asking this question in order to to garner some some mere positive verbal response that that might somehow make him feel good about himself but in order to point Peter and the rest of us to the commitment that arises from and then reveals real love it is this commitment that Jesus was seeking from this former fisherman turned disciple who then turned if you remember Denier. In fact, as we look at this passage, really the beginning of this narrative, which we looked at last week, John records this scene in such a way to remind us of the very fact that this Peter was the one who denied Christ, which we read about in John 18. You see, in John 21, verse 9, which was from our passage last week, John writes, very casually it may seem, seemed that that when they got to the land, they saw a charcoal fire burning on the beach. Now, that might not stand out to you, but the only two places that this particular terminology for this fire is used is in John 18, verse 18, and then here. The presence of this particular fire, this particular kind of fire, uh, seeks to remind us or draw our attention to the previous presence of a very similar fire. Where Peter, warming himself around it, denied Christ three times. And the commitment that Christ requires of those who seek to follow him is, is possible regardless of one's past. We see that arise from this passage. Jesus has a way about him of reconciling those who were former deniers or former deserters or enemies against God Jesus seeks to renew sinners like Peter he seeks to renew sinners like you and sinners like me but however as we will see we must be reminded that this commitment that Jesus raises a question about is indeed costly those who follow Christ do so at great risk in this world 
In addition, this commitment must also be a singular focused commitment. It it is a commitment required of those who follow Christ regardless of the circumstances of life that may come. There, There are no justifiable excuses for reneging on this commitment. And there are no comparisons. You see, we don't get to say, I follow Christ, and then argue along the way, well, that's not fair, as we look at those around us. See, John's final narrative here in John 21 seeks to reveal these characteristics of of a commitment to follow Christ. And as we consider this text over the next few moments, we're going to do so in light of these three characteristics. Number one, a, a renewed commitment. Number two, a costly commitment. And number three, a singular commitment. So let's read together John 21, verses 15 through 25. John writes, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, Do you love me? Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying This, Jesus said to him, follow me. Now, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who had been reclining at table close to to him and, and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? Now, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that that he remain until I come. What is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things. And who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Our Father, we ask in these moments that you would give us ears to hear. Not just the sound of the words, but the Spirit as He utilizes your very word given to us in the pages of scripture in order to to encourage us, to convict us, 
to grow us and to conform us to the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray that, Lord, you would work in these moments through the means of your word as you have promised that you would do. And God, I pray, as, as Brittany has already prayed, that, that we would not leave here the same way that we came in. But Lord, that, that we would sit under the word of God proclaimed, and as a result, we would be radically changed for your glory, and that it would affect the way we walk out of here today. For it's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. <clears throat> as I've already indicated, John seeks in this passage to draw our attention to to Peter's previous denial of Christ through the presence of this charcoal fire on the beach. Now, again, you may be familiar with John 18, if you remember that denial. It was around a fire just like this one that the Bible tells us that, that Peter was warming himself when questioned about being among those who followed Christ. And Peter, in return, denies Christ three times. And it is now around this, a similar fire, another charcoal fire, that Jesus requires Peter to now profess anew his love for Christ yet three times. The threefold repetition of Christ's question to Peter likely serves as, as a new beginning. A new begin, beginning for Peter in his service to Christ. Jesus allows Peter... This, in this moment, to renew his commitment to his Lord, regardless of what he had previously done. Jesus tells us that, or excuse me, John tells us uh, that the third time that Christ asked Peter this question, as we read this text, it says that when Christ asked him it the third time, Peter was grieved. Now, it's likely this very thing, as Jesus repeated this question, do you love me? Well, yes, Lord. Do you love me? Well, yes, Lord. Do you love me? That third time, I imagine that something sparked in Peter's mind. And he made the connection. His mind went back to not many days before. When, as Jesus had told him ahead of time, that before the cock would crow, he would deny him three times. Now, I think when John tells us that Peter was grieved, that the kind of grief that he's talking about is not the sense of a worldly grief that, that arose because Peter was maybe a little embarrassed. You know how we might get when somebody kind of confronts us. It wasn't, it wasn't merely that kind of grief. It wasn't that he just, he, he suddenly in the moment just felt bad. But rather, this was a grief that leads one to a radically renewed life as we find evidence, as we read on and find record of the rest of Peter's life from this point on. Now see, Paul also himself writes about this kind of grief in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Here's what he says. He says, as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. And I don't think that the grief that Peter experienced in this moment as Jesus brings 
to his remembrance what had previously happened. I don't think the grief here was merely that embarrassment or feeling bad. I think that what John is seeking to convey to us in this scenario is that, that Peter experienced that, that godly grief that comes that doesn't just make you feel bad, but serves as a means to the other side, to the, the renewal that Christ seeks in all those who would follow him as we do, making many mistakes along the way. The point that Jesus was seeking to make did not, however, lie in this question itself. It wasn't so much the response of, yes, Lord, that Jesus was seeking, as John records this this threefold occurrence of the question, do you love me? But rather, the, the point that's to be seen, I think, here, is in Jesus' follow-up. The pointed commission that follows Peter's response. Do you love me? Well, yes, Lord. It was the then response that Jesus gave to Peter's response that serves to reveal what real love for Christ truly is. It's not just a verbal affirmation. Yes, Lord. But there's something more to it. It is found in one's willingness to respond. It, it, excuse me, it's not found merely in one's willingness to respond with a positive answer, but in the content of one's life. Upon each question, Jesus exhorts Peter to an action. Do you love me? Well, yes, Lord, I, I love you. Well, then, Jesus commissions, he exhorts. Now, and if we read those three exhortations that Jesus makes, they, 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 they come in three different phrases. Namely, the first time, feed my lambs. The second time, shepherd my sheep. The third time, feed my sheep. But ultimately, they all seek to express the very same thing. Real love, true love for Christ is evidence in the content of one's commitment and not in the willingness for us to go, Yes, Lord, I do. True love, real love, biblical love for Christ will express itself through the actions of one's life. Which will, by the way, include love for those who belong to Christ, his sheep. Now, Jesus isn't seeking a momentary show or a, a outward voicing of our love for him. Not that that's a bad thing if someone asks you, do you love Jesus? Well, yes. But that's not ultimately what, what God is after in our lives. It isn't merely our willingness to, to say, well, yes, sure. I mean, who wouldn't? Jesus isn't seeking merely some formality in the midst of our modernized church of, of walking aisles and, and, and praying prayers and, and making public professions. Not that those things are not means. But that's not what God seeks in our lives. That's not what God seeks in our church. He desires that our love for Him be evident, not merely on a moment when somebody walks an aisle or, or says, I believe, but beyond these walls. Yes, in here. Yes, in our profession. Yes, in our affirmation. Yes, I love Jesus. But that alone is not enough. It must go beyond these walls. And this call that we read about, this, this call to a renewed commitment is summed up in the simple phrase that we read in verse 19. Jesus says, do you love me? Well, yes, Lord, I do. Well, then 
Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Well, yes, Lord, I do. Well, then shepherd my sheep. Do you love me, Lord? Yes, I do. Well, feed my sheep. And then ultimately, in, in a few moments, and we'll come back to this, he says, follow me. Simple phrase. Not really. Not so simple. But not only is the commitment to follow Christ characterized by, by radical renewal in our lives, we find that John reveals to us in this passage that the commitment to Christ is costly. I dare say something that stays on the peripheral in our minds as so-called followers of Christ. Following Christ's threefold commission to Peter, feed my lamb, shepherd my sheep, feed my sheep, he goes on to reveal the difficulty that Peter would face while seeking to live out his commitment to follow Christ. It would far exceed his commitment to live to live out this or to live out this commitment to Christ it would far exceed the temptation that Peter had previously faced around the fire that night when Christ was arrested and he fell miserably, denying him three times. This would far exceed that. Jesus then reveals to Peter that his commitment to follow Christ would in fact lead to his own death. I mean, how would you like to hear those words? Follow me. Oh, by the way, I just want you to know that if you do, you're going to die. I know we all desire to hear that, right? No. And I don't think Peter was ready, quite ready for that either. Not only was Peter to glorify Christ through faithfully living for him for many years and feeding Christ's sheep, but by ultimately giving his own life for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And John makes this clear when, when, when Jesus unpacks that illustration there, that when you were young, things were this way, but when you were old, someone's going to lead you where you don't want to go. And, and just in case we don't understand that, John adds a, a comment, a commentary on that when he says, this he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. By, by what kind of death he was to glorify God. So, Jesus was telling Peter very plainly, Peter, you're going to die if you follow me. Glorifying God often, and really I'm looking at that word often, I don't know if I should even include that word. Glorifying God includes great difficulty in this life. Unfortunately, many people, maybe even many of us, seem to think that being a follower of Christ is is about being happy. Having a, a better life right now. And in one sense, I think that we can say that is true. It is about something kind of like that. Because Christ does offer all who follow him a joy that surpasses all understanding. And it is, it is such, it is that he offers this joy that surpasses understanding because it's a joy that that true followers of Christ experience that does not make sense to the world. They look at us like we're fools when they see the joy that Christ gives to true followers of Christ in the midst of the things that we may undergo because of the gospel. It is a joy that remains even when the circumstances of life bring great difficulty and we ought to be pulling our hair out, but yet God grants us a peace and a joy in the midst of it. Ryan mentioned in his words of encouragement to the graduates, one of the things that he wished somebody had told him uh, when he graduated, read 
biographies about godly people. And there's plenty of them throughout history. But if you were to survey some of those biographies going all the way back throughout church history, even into modern day, and you were to read the stories of those who truly followed Christ with their lives, you would find that almost all of them suffered intensely difficult and often unhappy lives because of their faith. Now, they didn't regret it. And and, and I'm not saying that they joyless lives, but often intensely difficult and unhappy lives because of their service to the king. Yet, for some reason today, in, in our modern age... In the churches here, we, we think that living for Christ means that everything's supposed to go our way. It's supposed to, to go well. And, and when things go wrong, we tend to respond with, with things like, God, why are you punishing me? What did I do? Or some people, when they suffer difficulty and things don't go their way, they tend to respond, why has God forgotten me? I mean, have we forgotten The story we read here? Would we respond like that? And this is a common response. Not amongst the world, but amongst the church. Yet the truth is that for those who truly give their lives to live for the glory of the gospel, tribulation, difficulty, is not only possible, not only probable, but guaranteed. The Bible is very clear about that. And it's, as a matter of fact, if we're going to use a measurement for whether or not we're living our lives for the gospel, that would probably be a pretty good measurement. What kind of difficulty have you faced lately because of your commitment to follow Christ and glorify Him through the declaration of the gospel in word and deed? Yet, we find in this passage that in light of what would result... Peter's impending death from following Christ. Jesus doesn't go. So take your time, Peter. This is pretty serious. Uh, you know, this, this might not go well for your family, you know, because they might be left without provision. Or, you know, it might even bring difficulty to your family. So we might take it out on them. He doesn't go through all that. He simply says... It's going to cost you your life. So follow me. Our commitment to follow Christ is irrevocable. We don't get to walk a little bit down the road and go, hmm, it's not what I signed up for because if that's the response that you respond with, then you never signed up. Not to follow him. It's irrevocable. And it's without condition. It is unconditional. Real commitment to Christ. Real commitment to follow the Savior doesn't exist until, you know, until you start suffering financial difficulty as a result. Or until the pressures are just too much. It's unconditional. And it's to the end. That's real Discipleship. And, you know, I can I can talk about that with with great confidence for this very reason because I'm not forced to go. Well, man, will I make it? 
But what about if this happens to me? You know, will I fold under the pressures? Because we have something that Peter didn't in those, those wee hours, those nights around that fire. We have a promised gift of the Holy Spirit living in us, which Christ, through that Spirit, promises us that He will keep us. And so I can look to the future, no matter what it holds, and commit myself full, commit myself no matter what, even as a coward, and know that when the moment comes, if God calls on me or you to face intense difficulty, and likely, if you live for the gospel, He will, that in those moments, I don't have to question whether or not I'm going to fail miserably. Now, I won't be perfect by any means, but I'm guaranteed this, He will keep me. Because it's not about my power, it's about His. In fact, I think that's what Jesus was hinting at in John 10, in, in one real sense, when He said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. He doesn't say, there's a good chance that they'll follow me. It's possible or it's even probable. He says, my sheep know my voice and they follow me. So what we read in this passage in John 21 is, is an unpacking of that truth lived out in the moments of an individual life like you and me. You know, will, we, will we be able to handle it? Yes, if your life is his. If you belong to him, yes. So we can hear those words, follow me with all the intense difficulty that may come with that, that exhortation, that commission. And throw our hands up in this life and say, okay, I'll follow you. Why? Not because I'm some superhuman. Not because I, I'm somehow more spiritual than somebody else. No, but because... My Savior and your Savior has promised that all those who belong to Him, all those whom He redeems, who become His sheep, who are His sheep, will follow Him. Now, ironically, when Jesus attempted to teach the disciples about His own death, and we read about this in one, at one point in John 13, it was Peter who said at that time, Lord, where, where are you going? And Jesus answered him and said, Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Oh, if Peter only knew. And so long as that, that declaration was the, the power or the will of that individual man, Peter... We saw the outcome of that, didn't we? Are you one of his? No, not me. I don't, I don't know him. But when it becomes the guarantee through the power of God present within every person who truly believes, it is then guaranteed. And so Peter was then able to fulfill those words. Though he failed miserably, he fulfilled those words, not because... He had great willpower, ability, but because of the power of God at work within him. But now Peter was being informed by Jesus himself that that laying down his life that he once said he would do was in fact going to be the case. And as I indicated before, Jesus' follow-up to that reality was, follow me. So how do you view your commitment to Christ? 
What does that look like in your mind? What, is that, what do you think about that commitment? Do you expect life to, in this world to go well as a result? I mean, after all, if you just come to Jesus, he'll take care of it, all right? Make you healthy, wealthy, and wise, and life will be so much better. Is your willingness to follow Christ conditioned upon the outcome in this world? Are you as committed to Christ under the circumstance if you were aware that real commitment, not worldliness, but real commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ would cost you something dear? Would you then be as, as committed? What if it would cost you your family? What if it would cost you your job? What if it would be the difference between you living a, a, a fairly high economic life versus living in a struggle? Does it make a difference? Are you committed to follow him no matter what? Even if Christ were to require your life as a consequence? We must view our commitment to follow Christ with reckless abandon. Every time I hear that term, I think of a song written many years ago that conveys this statement well. Part of the chorus says this, We will abandon it all for the sake of the call. No, no other reason at all but for the sake of the call. Wholly devoted to live and to die for the sake of the call. That not only are radical renewal and costliness characteristics of, of our commitment to follow Christ, but finally our commitment to follow Christ must be characterized by singularity. Must be a singular commitment. Peter, he was no superhuman. He was no spiritual giant. It was at this point that Peter turned, as many of us probably would have done, and he saw the, the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. Now, we've heard, we've, we've talked about it before. It's very likely that that disciple whom Jesus loved is, is John himself. But upon seeing that disciple, Peter responds, I imagine, as many would. If we were in a similar situation, and we'd just heard these words, he goes, What about him? I mean, what Peter was saying was, now Jesus, I get it. I hear what you're saying. You want me to live a radical life for the gospel and, and declare all that you are. You, you want me to do so to the point that it's even going to cost me my life at some point. So, but what about him? I mean, well, what about Jared? What about Lenny? What about Tommy? What about all these other guys? I mean, you want me to do this, but what about them? With this exaggerated illustration, Jesus makes his point. Simply stated, what does that have to do with you? Now we, like Peter, often measure our commitment to Christ based upon the commitment of others. Or maybe better said, by the lack of others' commitments. That's how we often measure our commitment. You know, I'm committed to Christ because, hey... I, I do more than that guy. You know, I, I'm present more than that guy is. 
That's how we often measure our commitment. We often think that if, if we're responsible for, for performing or doing any particular task, then, then everybody else should have to do it also. You ever heard that or you said that? I mean, it's, it's notorious within churches for somebody to say, I think we ought to be, and you fill in the blank. And they start doing that. And it isn't long before they come back and go, well, why isn't anybody else doing it? I mean, if I'm going to do it, then, then, then they should have to do it. You've heard it before in some way, haven't you? I know I have. You probably said it. I know I have. After all, if those people don't have to live the way I do, their commandment doesn't look like mine, then it's just not fair, is it? Poor me. And you should probably feel sorry for me. Because, I mean, after all, I mean, I have to do more. I have to be more godly. I have to be more spiritual than everybody else because Christ just requires more of me than he does of you. Poor me. It's not fair. And I say that not in a condemning way. I say that putting the fingers right back at myself who have felt that way and probably even acted that way on many occasions. Jesus' call upon our lives is not dependent upon the responsibility of others. Regardless of what what God has has called somebody else to do, it has nothing to do with what commitment and faithfulness to Christ looks like in your life. We are simply to obey. We are simply to follow Him regardless of the actions of others around us. At times, Christ may very well require more of you than He does anyone else probably hasn't likely happened yet but it might at other times he may require less i know poor us probably not he always requires more of us right but ultimately what is required of others has nothing to do with our faithfulness even if no one else is faithful if everybody is a bunch of deadbeats it didn't change a thing god requires Faithfulness from us. And it doesn't matter if everybody else reneges. They won't. Think of Elijah. Oh, I'm the only one. Everybody else has turned their back. And God said, no, they haven't. Life is hard, I know. But there are 7,000 others who have not bowed the knee to Baal. We're never alone. We might feel like it. But we never are. Our faithfulness is not to be measured by the faithfulness or faithlessness of those around us. We are to live with a singular commitment to following Christ, no matter what, even if others do not. Unfortunately, when we read a passage like this in John 21, and we see Peter going, what about that guy, you know, John back there, what's going to happen with him? Uh, We... We find ourselves, whether we intend to or not, maybe reading the story from John's perspective. You know, the the spiritual guy out there that God's called to do something, but not me. That's what he called him to do. We want to be the guy back here in the back that says, you know, just because he's doing that doesn't mean I have to. Right? That's where we want to read it from. Because then we're always a little bit safer than the other folks. And we can justify it. And we feel better about ourselves by not doing certain things because, hey, God called them to do it, not me. 
And how dare they expect that of me, right? And if that's the way we read a text like this, then I imagine that we've woefully missed the point. Jesus is calling us to a singular obsession. And that obsession is the sovereign Lord of all. He is worthy of your entire life. Every aspect, every nook and cranny. He deserves our joy and our sorrow. He deserves our pleasure and our pain. He deserves our wealth and our poverty. He deserves our life and our death. Living for anything other than Jesus Christ alone is to serve, as Jesus once said, two masters with divided loyalty. And ultimately, that's idolatry. We must give him everything. Everything. That is what it means to be committed to following Jesus. Nothing less will will suffice. Nothing. So, in the words of Jesus, or in the words of Tevye, do you love him? Do you love him? Is your response to that question merely a a statement of affirmation, or is it a life lived? Is it evidenced by the content of that life? Because if you truly love the sovereign Lord of all, then you will take time to consider your commitment to following him. It's not optional. It's not only for some. It is for all those who belong to him. Your present commitment whether that would be seen as good or bad, your present commitment has nothing to do with your past. Whether your past was positive or whether your past was horrible, it has nothing to do with yesterday. It's gone. You, you may have been the, 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 the spiritual giant of all times. Last year, last decade, last century. It means nothing today. Your present commitment has nothing to do with the past. You may have been a miserable failure yesterday. Doesn't matter. Not today. Whether you've been faithful before or whether you, like Peter, have failed miserably in denying him, radical renewal is what Jesus does. That's what he does. And you can live for his glory. You can live for his glory, regardless of your past. Your commitment to Christ must be unconditional. It's the only, it is the the essence of commitment to Christ. There's no other kind. A conditional commitment is no commitment at all. And your commitment to Christ must not be dependent upon anyone else. Not your best friend, not your parents, not your children, not your spouse. It cannot be dependent upon anyone else. It must be a singular Commitment to his glory and his glory alone, even if it cost you everything. And ultimately, for those who truly follow Christ, ultimately in this life, according to John's gospel, which you might want to read again, it will. Father, we love you. We have a...
unique way often, Lord, of determining what commitment to the gospel and to you looks like. And when we measure ourselves up against many in in the church today, we look pretty good. But Father, I pray that you would not allow us to continue to do that, but that our, our focus, our commitment would be measured and obsessed upon one and only one, and that is you. And Father, I pray for your people this morning. <clears throat> Each and every one of us are walking in a, at a different point along the road, which has nothing to do with one another. Whether one is barely started down the road or whether one here has been many miles down the road, there is no comparison. But God, you desire to work in our lives where we are. And I pray that you would do that very thing right now. Regardless of yesterday. Regardless of our success or our failures in this world or even in our walk with you yesterday, I pray that today would be a renewal. A time for us to recognize that our commitment... must mean everything. Everything. Father, I pray for the one who might be here this morning who has never even come to grips with understanding in any sense what the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. I pray, Lord, you'd give them eyes to see even now. That you would give sight to blind eyes. That you would bring life where there is no life. You would replace dead hearts with living, beating, thriving life. And Father, for those of us who have experienced the, the wondrous grace of the gospel, I pray, Lord, that even today you would renew that sense in us. Remind us the difference between walking in darkness and walking in light and the joy that comes with that, regardless of the circumstances. And I pray that it would be the source of thrilling our souls. And as we sing this song, Lord, I pray that it would be more than just a repetition of words, but rather I pray that it would be our prayer and our commitment to you. My Jesus, I love thee. I know that thou art mine. So Father, work in the hearts of your people. And change us for your glory. For it's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Stand.